We have one mission at the program. Develop better leaders and create more cohesive teams. Let's go, man. It's a race. Welcome to the program podcast. The program is a team building and leadership development company that works with more than 160 collegiate and professional athletic teams and corporations throughout North America annually. And I'm Eric Capitulic, the founder and CEO of it. The program believes that talent allows us to do well in life. It allows us to win games. But a commitment to getting that much better. Put your thumb and index finger two inches apart. That much better allows us to compete for championships on whatever our chosen battlefield may be. We get that much better by being great teammates and great team leaders. Joining me today on the program podcast is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Dr. Bhattacharya is a professor at Stanford University Medical School, a physician, epidemiologist, health economist, and public health policy expert, focusing on infectious diseases in vulnerable populations. For our audience, Dr. Bhattacharya recently co-authored the Great Barrington Declaration. Dr. Bhattacharya and his two co-authors and 44 other infectious disease epidemiologists and public health scientists who co-signed the Great Barrington Declaration state in it that they have grave concerns about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of the prevailing COVID-19 policies. Dr. Bhattacharya, we have been so fortunate to have had the guests that we have had on the program podcast. They've been amazing in many ways. I have never been more excited for a guest to join us though. Thank you for doing so. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation, Eric. Dr. Bhattacharya, Jay, as you Please. told me to call you, I, I attended the US Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, and then served eight years as an officer in the United States Marine Corps. I love our country. And although not perfect, I believe it is the greatest country on earth. I also believe that regardless of the media's portrayal of it, COVID is not, it is not tearing our country or world apart, but rather our response to it is. I can't thank you enough for joining us in hopes of being able to articulate how and why we can and should respond both differently and better than how we are currently. I'd like to highlight for our audience that unless stated otherwise, any statistics, quote unquote, statistics that I use come from the CDC or WHO. Dr. Bhattacharya, Jay, you and your co-authors write Current lockdown policies are producing devastating effects on short and long-term public health. How so? So the lockdown policies that we're following are unprecedented in, in this, at least a century of, of public health. Uh, the the pre-pandemic plans that we had involve uh, basically not creating panic, uh, uh, giving people accurate information about, uh, about the health risks, giving people tools to, to cope with it uh, in, a, in a meaningful and, and reasonable way. 
um, situated based on where they are. Instead, we follow these policies that are that have caused, I think, enormous damage, both in the United States and and worldwide. Um, and I, I can give you just uh, we can I think over the course of this conversation will come a, a lot of this will come out. But let me just give you a couple of things just to give you a sense of this yeah, domestically and internationally. Uh, domestically, the CDC has found in June that one in four adults, uh, young adults, eighteen to twenty-four, seriously considered suicide. Yeah. Just this past uh, just this past June, uh, the depression rates from isolation caused by the lockdowns are are astronomically high in my experience. Um, and uh, I mean, it's just it's you can understand why people are not meant to be alone, apart from one another, disconnected from all the sources or many of the sources of the joy. Um, and and it's it's devastating. Now uh, you say, okay, maybe that's not that's not leading to death. I mean, that's not true. It, it is leading. To, uh, the opioid deaths are up again, according to the CDC. Um, the the uh, the deaths of despair that we found to be so devastating in two thousand and eight during that recession are are back in spades. I'll just give you one statistic I saw this morning in Japan, uh, which has had a relatively mild lockdown. Uh, this year there have been seventeen thousand suicides in Japan. Uh, more than the number of COVID deaths. Uh, I, I'm afraid that that is what's likely to happen. In, in, the, in the US, there's been a 20% increase in dementia-related deaths, essentially really from loneliness in nursing homes. Um, it's it's absolutely devastating. Mental Say health. that again. How many deaths in nursing homes? A twenty a twenty percent increase in dementia related deaths this this year thus far uh, in in nursing homes. Again, that's it's, it's isolation, right? Um, that, that's causing those deaths. Uh, so I think there, so. There's there's that, but there's also other other evidence of physical harm domestically. So people uh, stopped. It was initially during the initial lockdown. There was an eighty percent reduction in the number of people seeking, number of women seeking mammograms. Mm. Um, cancer screening collapsed in, in many ways. Now that's come back some, which is, which is really good, but it's, it's still not at the right level. Mm -hmm. um, the, 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 uh, so what we're, what we're seeing is uh, people more scared of COVID than cancer, which yeah. is a huge error. Um, yeah. And that's a failure of public health messaging. We've created this panic without giving people a sense of proportion about what really is dangerous to your health. In, in, not only have we done it to cancer, but the, I think if you were to ask, I don't know if the right term is most or many or a sum, but how dangerous is COVID compared to heart disease? I think most people are much more afraid of COVID right now than they are for heart disease and heart diseases killing millions of people. Now, <laughs> on that, in, Dr. Bhattacharya, I knew that this is the way this conversation was going to go today because I'm so excited to speak to you and, and learn from you um, it, and really listen. I was going to ask about it later, but, but I, I'll ask it now. Why, though, Why is all the focus? You, you, you talk about all these things. I've got countless statistics that we'll go through later, reinforcing what you're saying. And again, statistics, I'm, I'm, we're taking these from the CDC and WHO. They're not pulled out of Twitter. Um, why is so much of the focus on the number of cases and or this the number of deaths that COVID is causing rather than all of 
the deaths are byproduct to our response to COVID has has caused. Why do you think that? I mean, I, I mean, of, of course, it's a new disease, uh, and uh, you know, when we when we saw in the pictures we saw in Italy and and in in um, China, were scary in January, February. Um, I mean, and it, and you know, it, it it is it is. I mean, we don't want to paint a false picture. It for the elderly, it is absolutely a deadly disease. So just to give you some, again, this is from a World Health Organization um, uh, publication. Um, for people who are over seventy. The infection fatality rate is at the infection survival rate is 95%, so 5% mortality rate from infection. That's actually pretty high. I mean, what, one infection causing 5% to people, one in 20, that's, a, that's pretty high, right? Um, yeah. So for the elderly, people over 70 is absolutely deadly. Now, for people under 70, surprising, it's, it's surprisingly less deadly. So the infection fatality rate, uh, survival rate is 99 0.95% under 70. Now, for now, it's it goes up with age. So, uh, if you're 70, you know, 69 is much higher than if you're 10. Yeah. Um, for for children, the more children have died this year from the flu than have died from COVID. Right. So, COVID is less deadly than the flu for children. Um, so, I think I think that there's this this age stratification really really matters here because it points to a sort of a much better policy that we can do. But I think people look at the, at the, the, the damage, the, 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 the pictures of, the, of older people, and I'm, I'm, also, I'm like, you, know, you probably know somebody older that's died. A lot of us know this. Um, and, and it's salient to us because we see these pictures. The people dying from heart attacks, from cancer, we're, we're so used to it, we just, it, it numbs us. But you're absolutely right, Eric, it is a huge, magnitude difference that you COVID is less deadly for you than cancer. COVID is less deadly for you than heart, heart disease. COVID is less deadly to, for you than diabetes. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Jay, I, I often think like, why am I concerned about COVID, but have nowhere near the level of just fear that panic that so many people have about it regardless of the media's portrayal of it. And you know, Jay, really, I, I really draw from my military experience that in, in a lot of members of the military who are friends of mine. Now, I don't know if the it's we should stay focused on the military experience or the fact that, you know, birds of the feather flock together. Maybe my friends and I just aren't very smart, right? Of course, but, you, you know, I draw, I think about my military experience in the Marines and in special operations and the norm is to live your life in the unknown. You, you don't know so many things. So you then have to stay very focused on that which you know to be truth with a capital T. Not opinion, people coming in and telling you the way things are. Is that the way things are? Or is that your opinion on the way things are? And that just becomes part of our daily lives. So we become very used to uh, dealing in the unknown, where it then not only becomes not fearful, it just becomes the norm. And a lot of my friends who I served with in the Marines and in various other branches of the military have, we've discussed that same thing where simply the fear and panic that is in people because unlike cancer, unlike heart disease, there is some unknown here involved. 
the level of fear and panic is completely out of control to the reality of it, which is still, which is still very concerning. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very wise philosophy of life, Eric, what you just described. Uh, I mean, we, we are human. We're, we're going to die at some point. Uh, there, there are 200 pathogens that, that afflict humans, 200 some pathogens that afflict humans. Um, obviously, we, we can die from cancer. We can die from heart disease. We can die from many, many things. And the question isn't, how should we die? The question is, how should we live in the midst of that uncertainty? Um, I mean, so really, that's, and I think what's, what's happened is um, a failure of public health. Public health Standard public health practice, which again is filled with wisdom, is to not create panic, is to give people again the tools they need, the information they need so that they can cope with the and still go on with their lives as best they can, I mean, in normally as best they can. I mean, that's really the only way to live. You have no, I mean, to, to cower based on fear of, of one pathogen when so many things are potentially could afflict us is a mistake. Um, of course, it's, I think it's a mistake generally to live in fear. I think we should live our lives uh, filled with purpose and, and uh, aimed at, at doing good for others. But that's, but uh, and, but not not simply as as you know mechanisms of, of avoiding infection. I mean that's that's not that's not the main purpose of life. That's right. That's right. I agree. Now, when you, you know a couple of things that you had mentioned with you talk about the, the devastating effects on short term and long term public health. You know, we have a focus on cases and death during the same time, you know, you mentioned uh, mental health and I was reading an article, Benjamin Miller was the, was the author of it, of the well-being trust, uh, co-authored a, a study that talked about uh, seeking to determine how many deaths of despair from drug or alcohol abuse or suicide will result as a result of our response to the pandemic, their estimate 75,000 further. A United Nations report came out in April and warned that economic hardship, and I quote, generated by the radical interruptions of commerce could result in hundreds of thousands of additional child deaths in 2020. 42 million to 66 million children could fall into extreme poverty. Extreme poverty is, is for our listeners, is stated as a condition characterized by severe deprivation of basic human needs. And yet our fear, our panic has us focused solely on number of cases and deaths. And I think that that's a very myopic viewpoint. It's selfish, Eric. Um, so if you think about that number, tens of millions of kids around the world in poverty, uh, the similar uh, estimates out of, I think it was the UN said that there's going to, this year, there will be an additional 130 million people at risk of starvation. Yeah, as a consequence I saw of the that. economic yep. collapse um, caused by the lockdowns, right? I, I mean, I think, you know, if you live on $2 a day of income, which is actually, unfortunately, a lot of the world population, right. uh, an economic hit of just, you know, 20 cents puts you at, at risk for starvation. I mean, it is, it is a huge, huge impact. And it's often more than 20 cents. Like, you know, when India locked down, um, people who sell, uh, you know, food day to day, they, they, they buy the food, they right, sell right. it, they, then they use the money to buy more food so they can eat and then buy more food for the sell the next day. They locked down, all the customers are gone. They're forced to march or walk hundreds of miles back to their hometown in order to, for the quarantine. I mean, a lot of people don't survive that kind of deprivation, right? And, and 
those people's lives matter as much as the lives that we see counted each day in the in the in the deaths uh, um, death numbers shown on, on COVID. I mean, if we if we understood the the magnitude of that harm, I think we'd think about this epidemic very very differently. Jay, you just used the term that our myopic approach simply focusing on deaths from COVID is you use the term selfish. And that struck me because I agree with you. I think it's extremely selfish. What's and what's equally just uh, so disappointing to me is that our media portrays it as not shutting down our schools, not shutting down restaurants, not going into a quarantine, a strict quarantine, not doing all of that, that that is what's selfish. That by not doing that stuff, we're not taking care of our grandparents and we're being selfish because of it. And I think that, I, I don't believe that we have fake news in, in, our, in America. I, I feel like we have something much worse. We have part truths being, um, portrayed as news when in fact it's opinion yeah i mean i think um i mean look uh, people I, I believe that people want to do the right thing and what you mm -hmm. just described is people wanting mm -hmm. to do the right thing no one wants i have an 80 year old mom i don't want her infected with covid it's a, it's a high risk disease for, for someone who's 80 years old mm -hmm. i will work very very hard to make sure that she's protected from it um and i'm willing to do a lot to do that um but at the same time i also don't want tens of millions of children to starve in order to protect me from COVID or my kids from COVID when it's much less a deadly disease for me than it is for my 80 year old mom. There must be a better way. And, and that's sort of what the, is at the heart of the Great Barrington Declaration. We, it's a balance, right? So for younger people, the harms from the lockdown are worse than COVID. Uh, now, let me give you one more statistic, uh, Eric, from paper published in JAMA. Uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association Open Network. Uh, so when you when children miss school, it has consequences for their entire life, right? They're 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 less well educated. Um, of course, they're less. They they get worse jobs. But it also turns out they're less healthy. They make make less good investments in the decisions about their health, um, and that costs them life years. Less well educated children live less long than have less fulfilling lives you know sort of less long long live lives than 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 uh, better well better educated children so uh, what these authors in JAMA did is they estimated from the from just the just the short shutdowns we've had the the, the, the closing of schools we've had they estimate that five that we've basically stolen from our kids five and a half million life years in aggregate this is just the United States five and a half million life years um, we, we, and for, for what? I mean, for a disease for them, for them, for which the flu is worse. We're not protecting them. We're, we're basically using them as a mechanism of epidemic control. Um, in, I mean, I, again, I think the word selfish comes to mind. Like what, we, what, what right do we have to take from our kids that, that essentially that I call it a birthright to an education. I mean, that's something that's sort of fundamental we think about. Uh, that we provide to our children. We decided that that um, this 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 disease is so so dangerous um, that we're going to take take from them. There must be a better way. And and Jay, <laughs> talking about education, as I've said for months now, that people say shut schools down. Kids can do online learning. I, I always hesitate because you, you know Jay, the truth is, my wife and I were very fortunate. Yeah, we're part of the one percent of the one percent. 
So my son, he doesn't stay, he doesn't have to, he doesn't go to school. Yeah, he lives his life in Shangri-La around here. He, he, his computer breaks out, just buy him a new computer. Oh, when he's online classes, my, my wife has a job that allows her to be right there with him. He's got problems with one thing or another. She's, she's right there with him. At the appropriate time of day, she's, she's outsourced physical education to her husband. So he and I go and have PE class out on our hundred acre farm where we've got tires and ropes and swings and everything else. So we, and yeah, not true. Most of the world. Yeah. There was a, there was a, um, in, in the San Jose Mercury news, there was a picture, which I still haunts me to, I saw like of two little kids. I've been seven or eight years old. I don't know. They, and they're, they're sitting um, uh, with their Google Chromebooks provided by the, their schools but they're sitting outside of a Taco Bell or, or where there's Wi-Fi because they don't have Wi-Fi at home. They're too poor like, uh, to, mm-hmm. to have Wi-Fi at home. We're asking our kids to learn, poor kids to learn in that environment. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the number of kids who don't show up is astronomical because, so you know, schools are, are places where kids' mental health is created. Kids' abuse is picked up. Uh, uh, nutrition, you know, like for, for the poor um, in the United States, for poor kids in the United States, it's been absolutely devastating. This is the single biggest driver inequality, like a, a, as far as like economic policy goes, the single biggest driver inequality that I've ever seen. Yeah. And the, 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 the concepts are going to play out over a very long period of time. You write the results to name a few, meaning our response to this point from of COVID include lower childhood vaccination rates, worsening cardiovascular disease outcomes, fewer cancer screenings and deteriorating mental health, leading to greater excess mortality in years to come with the working class and younger members of society carrying the heaviest burden. Keeping students out of school is a grave injustice. Keeping these measures in place until a vaccine is available will cause irreparable damage with the underprivileged disproportionately harmed for the reasons as you just mentioned. Actually, can we stop about talk about the vaccine for a bit? Because it's yes. interesting. Like the, the now that uh, when we wrote it, there wasn't news about the vaccine. This great Barrington Declaration you're quoting from, but uh, but but now there is. Um, we're going to have in the United States something on the order of enough doses for. I don't know, 35 to 50 million people within the next couple of months if the FDA approves the vaccine. About 10% of our population then, just under. Yeah, I mean, so so the question then is like, uh, who should get it? I, actually, you know, the vaccine, it, it, I, well, maybe we can return to this when we talk more a little bit more about the, the policy prescriptions of the Great Barrington Declaration, but in principle, the vaccine could be used to protect the vulnerable, the older, older population, mm-hmm. um, in a much better way than you could without it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the only question then is, is uh, what do we do with the rest of the population? And the debate that's undergoing right now is, well, why don't we wait until we have enough vaccine doses for everybody, or we, we open up for the rest of the population after protecting the vulnerable? Um, those are the two alternatives. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue very strongly in favor of, of the opening up for the rest of us after, after, after we protected the vulnerable. I mean, that's really the heart of the the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, but the, the logic is very simple. We've just gone through all of the harms for, 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 uh, for, of the lockdowns. For younger people, the lockdowns are more harmful than the disease. Mm-hmm. And it's not close. Uh, we're essentially, by staying locked down, hurting these people on net. Mm-hmm. 
these people, meaning anyone who's not in the vulnerable group, meaning people over 70 or with, without, you know, without some chronic disease that, that predisposes them. To, to, so on, on the other hand, for the vulnerable, we have to figure out some way to protect them, right? Because it's not right to open up without protecting them either. Right. I don't want my 80-year-old mom infected. And I'm sure mm -hmm. you have you have relatives you you who you mm -hmm. want to protect. Everyone mm -hmm. does, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they're, my they're parents awesome. are in their 80s. Yeah. So we we want we want. Uh, uh, but now we I think we now with the vaccine have a perfect tool to do this. Right. We can use it to protect the older population, and we can we can open up the open up the world for the rest of us. Uh, so maybe we'll circle back to that if we start talking about the logic of the declaration. <laughs> You know, I so often my I've never been accused of being uh, short-winded, Doc, and and uh, and I have to tell myself constantly, uh, ask good questions and then listen to guests. That's why you have them, and then you bring up a point, and I and I want to be like yes, but and and I want to jump around and everything, and I and I've got this perfect. Please uh, do script. <laughs> I've got this perfect script for today, following the Great Barrington Declaration as from start to finish in statistics in certain areas to ask certain questions and everything else. And, but then you're bringing up such powerful things that I'm already completely off script here. So let me let me ask a question though, uh, which again we we're going to get to later. But I feel I'm compelled to ask it right now, Doc. You're you're discussing in, in critics of yours and of the great Barrington Declaration um, have pointed out, and we're gonna talk about all of those things. I've done a fair amount of research about it, but one of the things uh, that's brought up, I see consistently, and Doc, quite frankly, I, I have a uh, reservation about this. You talk about let's vaccinate those individuals who are most at risk, I think is the words you just used. I don't wanna put words in your mouth, but I, I think that's what you'd said, or at least that's what I heard. And those people who are over 70 years of age, but is it not also true, again, from the CDC website, that um, almost half of, well, 6% of COVID deaths occur in individuals with no underlying conditions, 6%, only 6%, okay, of the deaths have occurred in people without underlying conditions. And that includes for age, by the way, okay, so across all age groups, and across all those age groups, again, from the CDC website, uh, those who have died from COVID, out, the other 94% have had on average 2.6 underlying conditions. So the great cause of death of COVID is not just age, although it is a factor, but it's more of a factor is those underlying conditions. And of the underlying conditions, almost 40%, I mean, or uh, 100,000 people, the number one underlying condition was obesity. And in America, 47%, again, quoting the CDC, 47% of our population is obese. Yeah, so, uh, so how do we vaccinate for that? Right, so I think um, the, you're, you're right in, 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 in it's that, that there are other 
comorbid conditions that predispose you to mortality should you get infected. Um, but the single most important of those is age by far. So there's a thousand fold difference in the risk of mortality between the youngest and the oldest uh, in, in terms of risk mortality from infection from, by okay. age. Um, just to give you some sense uh, of, let, let's, let's compare someone who's obese, BMI of 30 versus someone who's, who's uh, sort of a normal weight, a BMI less than 25. Okay. Um, and uh, ask how many years of, of age would that translate to? So someone who is say 65 years old and obese will have the same risk as someone who's 70 years old. Okay. Just to give I mean, a ballpark. I mean, there's lots of different uh, uh, folks who have tried to do these risk calculators, but that's, that's ballpark r okay. roughly. Okay. So it's like, that's interesting. like being five years older. Right. Okay. Um, so the, again, the single biggest factor is age. Uh, I, I'm not against uh, finding other people who are at risk. I mean, diabetes, for instance, is another another risk factor. There's mm -hmm. there's there's many um, in, in principle, and there may be people who are younger who are at high risk. I think also should be protected mm -hmm. um, or, or prioritized for vaccines. I think one very simple way to do this is that we have actually pretty good risk calculators for estimating if you get infected, what's the risk of dying. You can use that and say, well, if you're at risk of dying, meaning if you're this age with these comorbidities, what's your risk of dying? Correct. Okay. Uh, and so we just say, look, uh, people who are above, you know, pick some number, mm -hmm. uh, X percent die mortality risk, then you are at high priority for vaccination. And that, that'll mostly it'll get older people, but it'll also get some younger people with these comorbid conditions. Hmm. Uh, that 40% number is a little bit, it's a little misleading because it includes younger people who are obese, who actually still have a very low risk of dying should they get infected. Um, right. So, so it's, uh, I, I mean, I think, again, we have a pretty good picture from the science now about who's really at high risk. We should use that to prioritize because I completely agree. We want to prioritize people with the vaccine who are at high risk. That's, that's really who's the most vulnerable. Jay, what do you say to the critics? Because again, in the Great Barrington Declaration, again, that, that you and two others have co-authored and then signed by a number of other health experts, you highlighted, and I quote, fortunately, our understanding of the virus is growing. You, you just mentioned that. We know that vulnerability to death from COVID-19 is more than a thousandfold higher in the old and infirm than the young. Indeed, for children, COVID-19 is less dangerous than many other harms, including influenza or the flu. Jay, what do you say to the critics who say that kids still get COVID and are dying from it? What do you say to the critics who say that kids can still pass it on to their grandparents? What do you say to, to them about, well, that's why you keep kids out of school? Okay, so um, that's a real good question. And it's, it's, it's important to understand the, the, rel the risks. Uh, so first, it is true, kids can get COVID. That is absolutely true. No, 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 no one, I think, or at least I've never claimed otherwise. Um, uh, it, it's just that they die of it from such low rates relative to other risks that they face. Right. So like, as I said earlier, the, the, the number of kids who died of the flu this year is more than COVID. I'm not going to kick my child out of school because he might get influenza. School, it is frankly more dangerous to keep my children out of school than, than to let them be in school. School is not only where they learn um, the, it, things that will help them live their entire lives in a healthy way. It's also places where, you know, where kids, uh, child abuse is picked up a lot of kids get their nutrition. It's just a much safer place to be than at home all the time. I mean, I, I mean, I also am fortunate, like you, in the in the sense that like I, I can replace some of what 
they would miss at school, but I can't replace all of it, right? They can't. Jay, can I just stop you right there? I'm sorry to cut you off, but you, you, you say something and it, it strikes a chord with me because let's talk about, uh, you highlighted child abuse, right? In, I think it was May of last year. And, and this is not a statistic because I don't have it readily available in front of me, but it is from the CDC website that child abuse, the, the prevalence of child abuse or the number of cases of child abuse dropped by 60 or 70%. And the reason why is, well, kids aren't in school, so nobody's seeing it, no one's seeing number it. one. Number two, you highlighted the uh, point of, well, look, my, my child, right? You, you, my children, well, they come home from school and yeah, well, they, they live in pretty good households at pretty nice places. And in fact, school is the safest place for many children. They get, they get meals there, they, uh, among other things. And just that environment is, is safer. Parents and, care for, I mean, the teachers care for them. I mean, there's a lot of good that happens in schools that oh, we sort of take for granted. That's um, right. And, and you know, Jane, it, but you highlighted and said, you know, it's safe, the safest place for them to be is in school. And the, the issue is, is that a lot of people use the question, well, what's safer, to be in school or where they could catch COVID or not? And what we're doing by asking that question is very different because we're saying, well, they could catch COVID in school. Why? They probably won't if they stay home. Well, that's true. But you're looking at, again, talking about a very myopic approach. You're talking about one issue. On the whole, looking at all of what we're looking at, we should send our kids to school. Yeah. And in fact, uh, around the world, the U.S. is an outlier. Um, throughout the epidemic, uh, places around the world, Europe, the Americas, uh, India, all over the world have kept their schools open as best they can uh, throughout much of the epidemic. Sweden, for instance, had kept all, all its schools throughout, literally all throughout the epidemic open um, with no child deaths through, I think, August or September at all. And for with, with teachers, and this is actually really interesting, uh, getting COVID at roughly the same rate as the rest of the population. They were not at any enhanced risk from getting COVID. Mm -hmm. um, there's a surprising result actually in the, in the scientific literature, which is that uh, while kids can get COVID, they seem like they are less efficient at spreading COVID than, uh, than, than they are at many other respiratory diseases. We don't fully understand why, uh, at least I don't. Um, but empirically, it seems really, really clear. So like, so for instance, there's a study that was done in the early days of the epidemic in Iceland, where they uh, sampled 12% of the population, I think more or less randomly, and they found everyone that had COVID in that sample. Uh, they sequenced the genome of the, the, the COVID for every single positive case they found. Um, and then they did this contact tracing study. So the nice thing about that is then you can tell, normally in contact tracing studies, if I'm, I'm, I hang out with you, I won't be able to tell if you gave the virus to me or I gave it to you or we got it from some third source if we're both positive. With the genetic analysis, you can distinguish that because the, the, the virus itself has a lot of mutations and the mutation patterns are like a fingerprint for which what the virus is, right? So if we share the same fingerprint pattern then, then uh, we might, it's unclear who gave it to who. Maybe we got it from some third person. Or, but if I, I have a fingerprint and you have something that's very close to that fingerprint with one little change, well, I probably gave it to you. Okay. All right, so you can just make those kind of distinctions. The surprising result was that there was not one single instance in that Iceland study of a child passing it to an adult. Lots of parents passing it to kids, but not the other direction. Um, 
and that's been a lot of a lot of other studies have sort of started to not, not as careful as the Iceland study, but have started to affirm that. Uh, there are also these event studies where they look at school closures to see does it does it actually slow the spread of the disease in the popular in the surrounding community. It turns out the answer is no. Um, they, they, they've looked at school openings to see does it does it tend to lead the spread. Most often, what they find is that the community spread of the disease affects the schools, not the other way around. And that's for younger children. Is that true? Does that true for, it's, it's, hold for high school and college as well? I, so for for I don't think for college, but for, but certainly for younger for for like I'd say high high school and below. I mean, it, the, the evidence is absolutely rock solid for like say junior high and below. Yeah, uh, and it sort of increases. I think as as you get older, you become more like an adult. So that they, they yeah. become more like adults in that sense. Um, colleges is interesting because colleges we closed our colleges right in 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 um in like uh, March, we sent a very large number of, of young adults home to live with their older parents, essentially creating this multi-generation, essentially putting together this, creating this risk of multi-generational homes, right? Uh, we actually, this, this, the, the economic harm from COVID has particularly hit young adults. A lot of them have gone home to live with their parents, older parents. Uh, we, in a sense, the lockdown has created increased risk to older people through these indirect mechanisms, the closure of universities, the collapse of the of the of the labor force uh, in, in March and April, um, it, 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 so it's it's kind of a, it's kind of interesting. Like it's not it, you think about lockdown as the safe thing, but it's not the safe thing actually. Um, right. It's 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 actually created enhanced risk in many ways. Right, and with as it pertains to very young children, I I see your point that so you're saying that the the chance of spread from young children to grandmom, granddad, is very slight. Yeah, much more. And then, and then again, I think what some critics will say is, okay, but there's still a chance. And I think your counter argument is, okay, there is still a chance, but the chance of when we look at the the, the bigger picture for the greater good, when we look at increased childhood obesity increase in uh, child abuse, nutrition, poor nutrition, getting people, getting kids in school, having them in a, an overall safer environment, that although, yes, there is still a chance, albeit very slim, to pass the virus from child to grandparent, that it's a greater, we have greater risk not keeping yeah, them yeah. home. I, th I think uh, there's this illusion that we can live an entirely safe life you, you hear this right like well, well let's open safely let's do, do, do this i mean um the, it's exactly the way you put it eric it's always a balance of risks and and keeping things in proportion right so i'm i'm not saying that if you're if, like if, if i'm a grandparent and i'm really really do fear for my life and it's not so important to me to go hug my grandchildren i can wait fine i'm not saying do that you can stay separated i'm saying but why why let a grandparent who's like purpose of existence is to connect with their grandkids why would you prevent that from happening if they're if for them it's more important than to avoid the the risk of covid spread which is actually pretty low from kid from from children young children to uh, to adults yeah and i and i think the other thing two two points on that is number one if a grandparent doesn't want to they uh, this is america yeah don't <laughs> yeah don't, right uh number one num number two uh you know doc you, you Again, getting back to safety, right? And that's that's an interesting word because it 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 and you we've seen it and I've seen it in friends, acquaintances. 
adults of of uh, parents of children i've got a i've got a nine-year-old son and a three-year-old daughter so my nine-year-old is in school and and i you know he's got friends and some of their parents you know that that safety issue and he and i have had conversations about this and um you know doc it's 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 funny because as i said i went to the naval academy and i, I served eight years in the marine corps i've in before kids, you know, but in my free time and things I like to do, I, I, I race in the Ironman, I've climbed Mount Everest, I've, 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 I've mountaineered around the world, right? Adventure raced around the world, jumped out of airplanes, dove in the ocean, right? Like, you know, in the military. But anyway, this, this piece is, and, and because of the program, the company that I run, um, you know, my, my son is inundated with this stuff that, that dad has done in his life, Okay. And I make a point of speaking to him about it, which is because he'll sit, tell me sometimes, hey, daddy, I'm going to be a Marine. And I make a point of highlighting to him, Axel, that's my son's name. You know, if, if you want to be a Marine, if that's what's going to make you happy, hey, great, I'll, I'll, I'll support you in it. But that, that's true for climbing mountains. That's true for if, if you want to do it because it's going to make you happy, Okay, I'll, I'll support you. But look, if you don't want to do it, I'm going to support you in, in those endeavors too. Like, I, you don't have to be a Marine. You, don't, you have to I mean, do those things in life that make... That's really wise, right, Eric? I mean, that's the, what you're talking about is, um, you know, we all are different from one another. I've never never climbed Mount Everest. I mean, I'm never going to climb Mount Everest, Eric. But, it, but, it, but I, I mean, I've climbed my... I've, I've done things that are, to, to me, are risky. Yeah. Um, uh, and and uh, I think um, we're all in different position. Uh, the freedom, I think, partly means the ability to take the risk that we deem worthy for us. That's uh, right. Is this one size fit all lets everyone has to take exactly the same amount of risk, even no matter what you do. Um, and, and Jay, I tell I tell Axel, I said, now look, so, so to your point, exactly. And, and, and I say, but now look, Axel, if if you want to be safe in life, if, if that's the goal to be safe, you, you can achieve it. You can achieve perfect safety by staying at home, trying nothing, doing nothing, achieving nothing, and being nothing, except safe. Yeah. So you, it, it's it's possible. The, the, the know, issue is is what's our risk reward trade off here? What, what how do we live in a world of risk? Actually, can I give you give one study I just saw the other day? Actually, actually, out of it was the Marines actually. So the, it, it was published in the New England Journal. They compared uh, a quarantine essentially that some group of Marines uh, sort of uh, followed uh, in order to control COVID versus a group that was not that, that didn't have a quarantine. There was actually more COVID in the quarantine group of Marines than in the non-quarantine group. You can't even be safe by quarantining. Because right. you know, uh, uh, like what happens is, it's, you think about quarantine is like it's like completely isolated. But we cannot be completely isolated. No, right? We have to. We have to go. See, you know, people have to give us food. We have to. We have to cook. There's, there's all even in quarantine. Um, in in uh, in uh, India in uh, Mumbai, there's a there's a slum called the Dharavi slum. Uh, during quarantine. Uh, pe people live there like 10, 10 people live in a house. It's yeah. very crowded. Yeah. The quarantine actually spread COVID. In, in the Harvey slums, um, yes. The 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 the, the idea and most transition we, of COVID happens uh, intra house, not inter house. Anyway, that's right. Exactly. That's right, yeah. So 
Yep. <laughs> that safety, I mean, it's, it's, it's illusory. And I completely agree with you. If you live your life that way, uh, I mean, yeah, you can reduce your risk from certain, from a couple of things, but it, it comes at great costs as we've seen here. At COVID. Yeah. Uh, Doc, what about the, what in this, getting back to fear and risk, I've, I've been reading and hearing more about these potential or possible long-term effects of COVID on children. What would your response to your critics be on that? Or, or not, I shouldn't say critics on that. No, what, what, would, what would be your, what would be, what should I talk about? What, what would be your answer to that? Yeah, no, I mean, I th- uh, Eric, please don't, don't, don't be shy. If you have, que- if you have questions, I'm not going to, you don't take it personal. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think, um, I think the, uh, uh, there is, there are some long-term effects on a, uh-huh. on a, on a relatively rare set of kids, uh, but that's true for a lot of, a lot of viral infections. Right, so uh, the flu, for instance, can have some long-term effects on kids. It's rare, but it can happen. And with kids, there's this condition called uh, multi-inflammatory condition for childhood, MISC, that happens after COVID for a rel- really rel- relatively rare set of kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that we should study and we should think about, but it's something I don't think you should worry uh, to death about. Most children, the vast, vast, vast majority of children who get COVID will not get that condition. Again, the vast, vast majority of kids who get COVID will not die from it uh, and will have no long-term consequences from it. Okay. You're right. As immunity builds in the population, the risk of infection to all, including the vulnerable, falls. We know that all populations will eventually reach herd immunity, i.e. the point at which the rate of new infections is stable, and that this can be assisted by, but is not dependent upon, a vaccine. Our goal should therefore be to minimize mortality and social harm until we reach herd immunity. The most compassionate approach that balances the risks and benefits of reaching herd immunity is to allow those who are at minimal risk of death to live their lives normally, to build up immunity to the virus through natural infection, while better protecting those who are at highest risk. We call this focused protection. Let me stop here. I'd like to ask you, because I, uh, the co-author of the program book, a, a book that I wrote, well, co-authored, uh, was released last September. You found on Barnes and Noble and Amazon, Doc. I'm just kidding, Doc. Is uh, J- Jake McDonald, one of my teammates. Uh, he watched an interview of yours yesterday. I don't think it, he was, it was online, but, but I don't think he did it yesterday, but uh, and he shared with me a very interesting point you brought up about herd immunity and that specifically it's, it's become really politicized that term uh, and has come to be known as like, well, let the old and weak die. But that's not at all what you mean by herd immunity. Can you, can you talk about herd immunity? Yeah. Uh, so let me, let's, let me um, first like address the, 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 the last point you made. I think a lot of people, uh, and including a lot of people who should know better, have used this essentially as a propaganda tool, right? Her, herd immunity, um, uh, which, which we'll talk about, just it just it does not mean let the old die. If uh, like even Dr. Fauci has said, uh, uh, mischaracterized it as a let it rip strategy. And he, what you just read, I don't see how anyone could read as saying let it rip. Um, what we're what we're saying is we have to protect the vulnerable. That's the, that's what focus protection is about. We can talk about concrete ideas to do that um, in, in just a bit. But uh, 
the protection of the vulnerable is absolutely at the heart of this Great Barrington Declaration. Um, I wouldn't be in favor if, 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 uh, if we were exposing the vulnerable. Letting it rip to, uh, across the vulnerable, to me, is the central biggest mistake we've made apart from the lockdowns um, throughout this epidemic. We, yeah. uh, in, in New York, for instance, we have exposed, we, we, uh, and actually New York and, and, and many other places around the country, uh, and, and then indeed the world, we uh, let COVID spread in nursing homes. That's 40% of the deaths. Right, that is a enorm a catastrophic mistake. Right, and I am forty percent of the deaths have occurred in nursing homes. Yeah, something on that order. I mean, I yeah. could, 38, 50, yeah, right, right, right. Like yeah. Um, so, uh, so it's it's pretty. It's 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 so that is a failure of focus protection. Mm. Right, because we know that those folks are vulnerable. We should not be exposing them to COVID. I am not in favor of let it rip. And to, to say that uh, that this Great Barrington Declaration argues for let it rip is a is is just I mean it's just a lie. I mean there's no other way to put it. Um, and, and including so this is said by like people like Dr. Fauci. It's just I mean I hope he's just, just doesn't understand rather than lying. But that is that is an absolute uh, catastrophic misreading of what we're talking about. So you have not. I know that you've been. Um, spoken to by government officials you and dr fauci have not spoken no no but i've spoken to other government officials that i mean it's um it's unfortunate i think the problem is that uh it, i mean I, I, I don't want to speculate but i think um the it, it, let's let's just try to take the idea seriously so then we can we can let's let's leave aside the the, the misrepresentation mm -hmm. so, so what what is herd immunity well, it comes out of basically almost any time you look at a model of disease spread of a disease like this, a virus like this. Essentially, you can think about like there's three different compartments. There's people who are susceptible, people who are infected, and people who are recovered. The people who are recovered from the disease, they have immunity. That's that's an established fact now. Uh, there's antibodies, of course, but also and long-term immunity long -term is what immunity. is what we've figured out, I it's, guess. Yeah, it's not permanent, probably, because it's, like, it's like other coronaviruses. I think the immunity lasts one to five years. Okay. Um, it's probably when the disease has only been around like 10 months, so or 10, 11 months. So it's, but we know that for the vast majority of the population, it lasts at least 11 months. Now, it's not just antibodies. The antibodies you, have, you get after you're infected, they rise and then they fade. But other mechanisms of immunity persist, T cells. Other, other mechanisms of immunity. And we're still working out exactly what those mechanisms are, but you, you can get a sense of how, uh, how, how complete it is by the fact that out of you know, hundreds of millions of infections worldwide, there's only a handful of documented reinfections, Le probably less than one. So the, the vast majority of people are protected after they're, they're infected. And, and, okay. and if, they, if it's anything like other coronaviruses, and it seems like it is, the people uh, that even as immunity fades in the long run, when you're reinfected, you get a less severe form of the disease than you did the first time, unless you have some, you know, immunocompromised or some other thing mm -hmm. going on. Mm -hmm. So okay. it's so there is immunity. That means that um, as people get the disease, they're, they're and they interact with people who have the disease. If you're immune, you're not going to get the disease. So what does herd immunity mean? So in a population, when you first get an infection introduced, you you hang around with five, four, you have, you have, you're, you're sneezing, you're coughing, you go, you go like hang out with four, four or five other people and you infect them, three, four, some number of people. Um, well, if, if two thirds of the people are already immune and you, you would, would infect three people, well, two out of those three people you would infect wouldn't get infected. 
Right, right, That's, right. That is herd, herd immunity is when one new person gets the disease, they pass it on to one or fewer additional people. Now that's not magic. That just comes straight out of the math of these models. And that's just and that and that it's true for like it, like Zika is like this is controlled by measles is controlled by herd immunity. There's there's not um, there are a lot of examples of diseases. The other four coronaviruses that circulate in human populations are also controlled by herd immunity. Mm -hmm. It's not magic. It's just a mathematical fact. It's a biological fact. It's, a, it's like a, a, my co uh, my co-author of the declaration, Martin Kulderoff, says it's like a you know, an airplane thinking about, like a pilot thinking about landing an airplane. You have to think about gravity. Herd immunity is like gravity. It's it, it is the end point of this epidemic. That's what will that will eventually control the the the, the spread of the disease. Um, the the question isn't. A herd immunity strategy. It's not like a, I use a gravity strategy to land an airplane. That would be really that it's a misnomer. The only question is, yeah. how do I safely land the airplane? Same thing here. Herd immunity is the endpoint of this epidemic, no matter what we do. The only question is, how do we most safely get there with the least human misery, the le least harm, the least death? That's really the only question. So to talk about herd immunity as if it were, oh, let let's do this callous, let it rip thing, is a complete. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a lie. It's a misrepresentation yeah. of this. And Jay, uh, to be clear, um, as, as you mentioned that, uh, let's talk about, because you say, actually, in fact, what we're really talking about here is focused protection. Now you've mentioned it before, but let's talk about focused protection in particular and focused protection of the most vulnerable, but if we have, if we do what you say in the Great uh, Barrington Declaration, and we we have just focused protection, does it prolong the pandemic? It might, but uh, I don't. I, I'm. I'm. So the reason why we one might want the pandemic to be shortened is because the harms of the lockdown are so high, right? So you don't want. Uh, the, and even focus protection, there are harms from it, right? So uh, isol we already talked about one, isolation in nursing homes is deadly. Right. So you kind of don't want it to go on very long if you can avoid. Now, of course, uh, in nursing homes, I would accept some isolation if it meant protecting older people from being exposed to the disease because it's absolutely deadly in the disease. So it's, again, it's a question of trade-offs. Um, right. There's also lockdown fatigue. That these these measures are not cannot be kept permanently. I mean, we we already feel them 11 months on, having lived through them. There's um, so uh, they're not these are not permanent measures. These are measures that you take in the to protect the vulnerable until you reach a point where the disease no longer threatens the vulnerable. Not and not one moment longer. Yeah. Okay. So it, the the again, this gets back down to. <laughs> You're not saying let it rip, let it rip. You're saying focused protection on those that are most vulnerable and yeah. build up herd immunity elsewhere. Yeah. Realizing that, yes, the number of cases will certainly increase. Yes, deaths will continue to increase. Deaths are going to increase no matter what from COVID, but looking at the entire big picture of the world and all of the other things that are occurring because of our response to it, there is a better way, not a hundred percent safe way, but there is a better way, better way than 
hey, close schools, close restaurants, close gyms, close this, close that. Stay at home. There's yeah, a better way. Gyms closing. You know, people go to gyms to get healthy. I mean, that you talk about the obesity epidemic. Um, I mean, that actually probably makes COVID worse. Closing gyms, in some sense, like if you people yeah, no. healthy. I mean, I, th- I think um, the key thing is, I think, is that you probably, if you actually had an effective focus protection strategy, you'd have less COVID deaths and less non-COVID deaths. Mm-hmm. The lockdowns, I think, increase COVID deaths relative to what they could be compared to a focus protection strategy. Um, so, and, and, and they certainly increase non-COVID deaths. Uh, yeah. So, so I think, uh, so the, the idea there is that, um, and we'll, let's, we'll talk about some of the strategies for focus protection ideas that we put in the Great Branching Declaration. I, I actually think it's possible to do this. A lot of the critics have said, oh, it's impossible. Let's throw up our hands and say it's impossible. I've never seen public health people ever give up so easily before in my life. I mean, and I think part of the problem is, that is, is a question of thinking. If, they, if you believe the only way to protect the vulnerable is by reducing cases, well, you're not gonna to try to think of other things, other strategies to, to protect the vulnerable. And that failure in thinking, I think, has led to, led to a lot of unnecessary deaths. Um, you're right. I'm sorry, go ahead, Jay. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, no, please. Okay. Uh, sorry, I mean, I, I think- uh, I mean, Well, I, I wanna to talk to you about some of these issues that you raise in the great Barrington Declaration as to how we can exactly do this focused protection because I found it interesting that a, a lot of your detractors, a lot of your critics say, well, you don't provide any ways for us to do this. And I, I quite frankly thought, I, I don't know what, I think a little bit of reading comprehension should help, but but I would, I'd like to hear more f- about it from you. But you write, adopting measures to protect the vulnerable should be the central aim of public health responses to COVID-19. By way of example, nursing homes should, nursing homes should use staff with with acquired immunity and perform frequent PCR testing of other staff and all visitors. Staff rotation should be minimized. Retired people living at home should have groceries and other essentials delivered to their home. When possible, they should meet family members outside rather than inside. A comprehensive and detailed list of measures, including approaches to multi-generational households can be implemented and is well within the scope and capability of public health officials. I see the examples that you're using here. What other thoughts do you have about how we uh, we can do focused protection? So if you go to the FAQ that on, on that site, uh, on the Great Parenting Declaration site, we provide a lot more details. Also, I've been writing basically <laughs> continuously since the, the, that uh, in, in op-eds and others trying to provide ideas. The way I think about it, there's sort of like, just, I mean, this is oversimplification, but like think about four different places where older people live or vulnerable people live. Um, one is nursing homes. And nursing homes, we talk about in some detail there, but like you, there's a lot you could do in nursing homes. And I think um, uh, we actually have gotten much better. Like in the early days of the epidemic, we sent COVID infected people back to nursing homes that didn't have a place to, to essentially segregate them from the rest of the population. And they infected these nursing homes. That was a catastrophic mistake. I think that happened, uh, I mean, in New York, New Jersey, a whole bunch of places that it really shouldn't have happened. Um, but now let's, let's go to the positive. Well, um, uh, we now have these rapid antigen tests that we should be using in nursing homes so that when visitors come, uh, they, they can 
check to see if they're positive before they go interact with older people. Um, the PPE, we should be using in nursing home staff. A lot of nursing homes have staff that work in multiple nursing homes, and we should limit that. Um, you, you know, because and, and the, we should limit the number of people, number of staff members a, 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 a patient sees, a person in a nursing home sees, uh, so just so that they just to limit that risk. At the same time, you kind of figure out some way so that uh, we don't isolate people. In uh, so, like having someone who's COVID positive, we should have a either if the nursing home doesn't have a facility, they should have they should they should there should, should be like another facility outside to to house the the the, the patient while they're while they're positive. Um, you know, I mean, I think just overwhelming resources should be used to protect nursing homes, and kind of that's that policy actually we followed uh, in the U.S. since uh, since the since the spring. Um, we've gotten a lot better at that. Uh, not perfect, obviously, by any means, but since, but it's it's uh, it's 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 improved. Um, another location is, and this is something we don't think about, but like is 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 absolutely shocking that we don't. Um, we we designated a large class of workers as essential. Right, we said if you're a janitor, you're essential. If you're a, if you're a, cl a clerk in a in a grocery store, you're essential. If you're a meat packer, you're essential. Um, well, what if you're 63 years old and you have diabetes, and you're an essential employee? We basically said go go outside, go get exposed, even though we know you're vulnerable. That is just not right, right? And that's a failure of thinking. It's a failure of policy. And there are tools available to prevent that from happening, right? So the Americans with Disabilities Act allows. Uh, uh, classes of employees who are disabled, we call it a disability to be vulnerable to COVID. And then now the employer has to provide some reasonable accommodation, some alternate work arrangement that doesn't expose you to the, to the, the disease, mm -hmm. right? So for teachers, for instance, older teachers who are, who are vulnerable, maybe they can teach from online or they can, they can help the younger teachers create curriculum or grades or something like that. Uh, there's always some creative way to protect the vulnerable if you just think about it. And, and, and instead, we've done is said, look, uh, this whole class of essentially poor, poor worker workers, you go get exposed, while I, Mr. Fifty-two-year-old, uh, not particularly vulnerable Stanford professor, can sit in, in, on Zoom. Um, mm. I mean, it's just it's it's. I think it's because uh, it's, it's like a huge engine for inequality. That, yeah. that, um, so that, that's that's a second class. Another another third class, third third set of people are people who live alone. Older people live alone. Um, we, we've done some things. We said, okay, like if you if you live alone, if you're older, you can have a, an hour in the morning at the grocery store with just older people. Well, that's not enough. Why not? Why don't we use our resources to deliver groceries to older people? Who I mean, actually, that's something we don't need to wait for the government to do. We can just do if, if we know older people living in our own neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, uh, so there's there's things we can do for that, and then finally, multi generational homes. We talked already a little bit about them, but I think the the COVID uh, lockdowns have created multi generational homes. I think ending the lockdowns could help address that problem partly. But there, you you can use you know hotel rooms, um, make them available if if like you know like say you have a 25 year old living with you and you're 70 and you're they, the 25 year old does 25 year old things that gets happens to get COVID while they're sick. You can the the 70 year old can. Be provided a hotel room, uh, you know, in, instead of just ho homeless people getting them. You could you could use multi generational homes for that. Um, you could use you could provide rapid tests available. Like right now, the rapid tests that you get are they have to be uh, they're they're actually kind of cumbersome because you have to go to a lab to get them. Like make a lot of home tests. So the twenty five year old comes home says, oh, I'm positive, and the twenty five year old goes finds goes and uh, you know isolate somewhere else. In the meantime. 
Um, mm -hmm. I think it's it's multi multi generational homes are a problem, but again, the creative solutions are possible if you just think about them. And finally, now the vaccine, once it's there, we can use that as a, in a sense, almost as a perfect focus protection device, right? If, if, it's, if it's safe in, in, in older people, we just, we use it to, uh, where, where for the most vulnerable people, we, we say, okay, here, you, you, you get the vaccine first. We don't have enough doses for everybody, but we have enough doses for, for the vulnerable, I think, certainly, or the most vulnerable, certainly. And, you know, Jay, what I keep coming back to is, and you brought up, you know, older people, the thousandfold increased risk of them of catching and dying from, from COVID and then our response to it. And I know that every article I, I wrote, read was critics, detractors saying, okay, but what about this? Okay, this won't work because of this. This, this doesn't work because of this. And the, in every one of those articles, again, highlighted okay, this won't work. And to, in order to make sure that fewer people die from COVID, then shut down schools, shut down restaurants, shut down gyms, shut down movie theaters, shut down. All. And the point is, and the truth is, even as I listen to you, none of those are perfect solutions. No, think about it. Meaning, meaning, meaning yeah. people are still going to die. Yeah, like, I mean, let's get our arms wrapped around that. That Explain what you are. It's just simply going to be impossible for some people. There are holes in every one of those uh, possibilities of ways to address things. What we're saying is, is that on the whole, how we are, our approach to keeping COVID deaths low and the media portrays COVID deaths, COVID deaths, COVID deaths, we are completely losing sight over the fact that, yes, it's, it's going to be a challenge. And yes, people are going to die from COVID. But right now, doing what we're doing is causing much greater harm everywhere else. Yeah, I mean, for the younger, I mean, for the non-vulnerable, it's been catastrophic, as we talked about. I, actually, can I, can, we, can I go back to something you just said, which is really interesting, right? So if you, if you think about the current strategy, essentially this lockdown strategy, I, I can't go to worship, I can't go to, uh, I can't, I, I can't go uh, you know, out to restaurants, I can't go to gyms, I can't do any of this stuff. Um, has it actually protected the vulnerable? Right. I, I mean, any honest response to that would be the answer has to be no, right? Uh, we, we these 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 lockdown orders, despite them, COVID has spread all through the now all through the Midwest, uh, earlier in the summer, all through all through the the, the Sun Belt, and then in, in the in the spring, all through the Northeast, right? Uh, the lockdowns have utterly failed to protect the vulnerable, and it's just despite the lockdowns, we have had two hundred fifty thousand deaths. The idea that the lockdowns are the right approach, just logically or obviously, does not make sense if you look at the evidence. Um, yeah, and, and and you know, the, I I mean, I think that's really been at the heart of the problem. And and, and actually, let me let me let me try to uh, get address the point. That I think um, there's there's a confusion of goals, right? So when you're thinking about what you want to do, you need to understand. You, you have to first ask yourself, what am I trying to aim at? Right. So. My aim is to minimize death and harm until this until the epidemic is over. I don't I don't think it's possible to get to zero COVID. In fact, I know it's not possible to get to zero COVID. I think that there's confusion of goals. Like some people think about the lockdowns as a way to eliminate the disease, but it is not possible to eliminate the disease with the lockdowns. In fact, it's, I don't think it's technically possible to eliminate the disease at all. It's just far too widespread. 
and, and it seems to spread at least in part through asymptomatic spread. I mean, it's not that, that now, if you think about zero COVID as the goal and you aim at it and you miss, you're going to cause more harm than if, right. you, if, you, if you're more realistic about, okay, we have to learn in some sense to live with disease, just like we live with 200 other pathogens uh, that, mm -hmm. that, that, that infect, infect humans. Yes. Yeah, it's a great point. Jay, you close the declaration with those who are not vulnerable should immediately be allowed to resume life as normal. Simple hygiene measures such as hand washing and staying home when sick should be practiced by everyone to reduce the herb herd immunity threshold. Schools and universities should be open for in-person teaching. Extracurricular activities such as sports should be resumed. Young, low-risk adults should work normally rather than from home. Restaurants and other businesses should open. Arts, music, sport, and other cultural activities should resume. People who are more at risk may participate if they wish. While society as a whole enjoys the protection conferred upon the vulnerable by those who have built up herd immunity. One thing I recognize that you did not highlight in simple hygiene measures was wear a mask. I'm not against it. I mean, if, if that's, if that, uh, it, I mean, I think I just saw, there was a randomized study in Denmark that's, that uh, they, they uh, in the early days of the epidemic, they, the Danes weren't really wearing masks. They randomly assigned 2,500 people to mask and 2,500 people not wear a mask. And what they found was the masks were protective. It was like, I think 1.8% uh, of the people wearing masks got sick got COVID and 2.1% of the people not wearing masks got sick. The 0.3% uh, difference, which is uh, which amounts to about a 14% efficacy of preventing COVID. Masks mm -hmm. are not perfect, but they have some, some effect. I'm not, I'm not against mask wearing. I just, I don't think uh, mask wearing is a panacea. I mean, obviously not a panacea. I do think that, that uh, we created this, and this is a, another failure of public health messaging, um, uh, we, we have created the situation where people judge one another on the basis of, okay, you got COVID. Well, wh what did you do to, how did you fail? What did you not do? What, I mean, you know, it's all, we've, we've shamed people with COVID, which it's, that's a failure of public health. Like I thought we'd gotten over that with HIV. We do not, sh we should not be shaming people with disease or looking to blame them. We should be compassionate to them, provide them care they need. We should be, you know, sort of treating them like, human beings as opposed to looking for fault in them. Um, I think partly the mask wearing, I mean, I, I, the only reluctance I have with masks is that this messaging has gotten to the point where if you don't wear a mask and you get COVID, it's your fault. When in yeah. fact, it's only yeah. completely protective, very incompletely protective. So, um, I mean, it's, again, it's, I'm not against it. And if people want to wear a mask, of course, I'm not against that either. Actually, I should, another thing I should say, it's the, 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 the Barrington Declaration says if older people do want to participate and take the risk, hug their grandkids, I'm not against that. And I'm also not against someone who's, who's you know, legitimately scared or scared for whatever reason that, and, and younger and doesn't want to participate. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I think that's, in, in a sense, it's, it's a call for freedom there, not a call for, uh, not, I mean, a call for, 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 for well-informed freedom. You know the risks, you do, what, you do what you want. Jay, telling, um, telling me, hey, if you don't want to work, don't, don't, don't work. Telling me you're gonna close your business that that's fascism. 
I don't, I don't know if I want to use that word, but I will say this. I, I am, I've been shocked at the, the, um, uh, the, the level at which Americans are willing to put up with violations of our, our what I thought of as like our fun foundational civil liberties. Um, I mean, we can talk about, actually, there's one freedom of speech, I think, has been a very, very difficult thing. I mean, I see, I hear, Eric, in, your, in how you've structured this, you've been very careful when you quote statistics to quote from, from the published literature and, the, and to note that you're quoting from published literature, World Health Organization, and so on. I mean, that's good reason, because we've seen videos get censored because the YouTube or someone else, someone, someone decides that the, uh, the public shouldn't hear what someone else is saying. To me, that's a violation of uh, the, the American ethos of, of, of free discussion. Um, we can, if you don't like what I'm saying, or you disagree with what I'm saying, then say some, I mean, <laughs> you can see, and you probably read, a lot of people have, they're free to say that I'm wrong. Uh, I don't think I'm wrong, but like, you know, I might be, I, I, I hope to learn from them. I mean, that's the whole purpose of this, this sort of discussion is so that we can, we can sharpen one another. I can learn from you. You can learn from me when I'm in, when I'm wrong, you'll help me understand I'm wrong. And uh, when, you know, when I think you haven't got something right, we can, I mean, that's, that is the, the spirit of that's how science works. Um, this sort of like censorship. That's and, the way and, life should work, yeah. Jay, right? Like w since when, does and I think it's been and you know I don't know if you've ever if you've watched the Netflix movie The Social Dilemma but I I, I see it that why does you believe one thing and I believe another why does that mean I have to dislike you like wh why can't we just disagree and then and by the way and I'm going to talk about this in my closing today but I, I agree wholeheartedly you know getting back to masks my my opinion for what it's worth which is not worth much especially when I'm talking to Dr. Jay Bhattacharya is this, is that for me, um, I believe that wearing a masks, wearing a mask makes people who have very high levels of fear and panic, it makes them feel better. Now, to your point, whether it actually makes them better, more healthy, um, I don't know. I mean, I do think it does help. I mean, you just quoted a statistic where it might be only 0.3% difference, but at least it's, uh, if it's a big enough group, then it's statistically significant. So, so I'll wear a mask for, for, for my fellow neighbors, my teammates in, in America, I'll wear a mask. And, and if it makes them feel better, great. But to say that I can't send my child to school to make you feel better, then that that I have an that I have an issue with. Yeah. Uh, to to say that well we can't work. You have to close your restaurant. You have to close this. To well, I, I then I want to have this discussion with you. I do want to quote what the CDC and WHO are saying, not what the New York Times believes. I want to be able to quote the CDC and the WHO, and not just pick and choose. I want to give all of those statistics and facts so that uh, we may still disagree, but at least we can come to a better understanding of, of the issue. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that's really, that's the only way forward, right, Eric? I mean, you have to, we have to like, um, I mean, like uh, it's like take masks, right? The, the, the literature on masks is really mixed. There's some evidence that they do some, some good and other evidence that they do nothing. Um, it's, I mean, any honest reading of that literature, and now it's like started to be a vast literature, 
will tell you there's the randomized evaluations find basically very little. Um, there's only one randomized evaluation in the context of COVID and a lot of the, in the context of, 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 uh, of, of influenza and the typical mask that people wear in, in where, where they don't they really, they don't, they don't throw it away after one use. They don't really know how to put it on uh, like surgeons do. Um, it, it's really mixed. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to provide a huge amount of evidence in favor. Uh, the non, um, the non randomized evaluations also are mixed. Some find some some effect, and some find no effect. And and you know they're they're, they're non-randomized, so it's hard to understand exactly whether they're giving causation right. Um, uh, so given that, what's the right thing to tell the public? Well, actually, what you said really makes a lot of sense. It's like you know, uh, when I uh, when I'm out in public and I and and I see people are uncomfortable if I'm not wearing a mask, I wear a mask. It's like it's just good courtesy. Um, on the other hand, I don't want a first grader trying to learn how to read not being able to see someone's, the teacher's lips move. Uh, that's really important part of, I mean, there's, or like, you know, I, sometimes I just want to see people smile. I mean, I just, there's nothing, it's not wrong to not wear a mask if it's important enough. And we understand there's this mix. If it's one, it's another thing, if, if there was the, if it really was a panacea and a relatively cheap one. Um, so I, again, I'm not against it. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying don't use it. Don't don't treat it as a weapon with against other people. Don't judge other people on wearing or not wearing it. Um, Our response to COVID: focused protection. Let's have all of our resources focused on those individuals who are at the greatest threat of dying from COVID, old people, 70 years and older, all of our resources. The rest of us, let's go back to living our life normally, practice good personal hygiene. If you don't want to, that's freedom. Don't. Would that, am I missing anything from the great declar the great Barrington yeah, Declaration. That's, that's that's the idea. That's you you've hit it on the head, Eric. Um, it's um, I mean it's in, in a sense it's not even original. That's the old fashioned pandemic plan, right? You find out who's vulnerable, protect them, uh, and, and and then um, letting everyone else live their life. It, it sounds like a radical idea now. It really isn't that radical, really. I mean, if you think about it, uh, living our life normally should be the norm. Not uh, not something where where uh, you know you, you you have to stand up and be brave to say it. Um, I, I think uh, I think we it's strange that we've gotten to a place where we think about that as if it were ra a radical idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Dr. Bhattacharya, Jay, thank you so much for joining me and us today and for sharing your insights. I, I opened our discussion by saying that I had never been more excited to interview a guest. And you just proved why. Thank you. Oh, Eric, it was a real pleasure to talk with you. I would ask our audience to do two things. First, separate what COVID-19 has caused and what our response to it has caused. And let's not confuse the two. COVID has caused 250,000 deaths in the United States. Our response to it has caused an incredible steep rise in unemployment and a recession in our economy. Our response to it 
has ensured that children receive no or improper education and nutrition. Dr. Bhattacharya highlighted suicides have doubled. We have a fourfold increase in anxiety symptoms, a fourfold increase in the prevalence of depressive disorder. Again, quoted from the CDC. Stop saying that COVID has caused those things. It has not. Our response to it has. Second, as Dr. Bhattacharya and I spoke about at the end of our discussion, for our audience who does agree with Dr. Bhattacharya, I challenge you to effectively communicate, talk and listen, not yell and scream to others who don't agree. For those members of our audience who do not agree with Dr. Bhattacharya, do the same. I got my questions to what critics of Dr. Bhattacharya and his esteemed colleagues with the Great, De Great Barrington Declaration propose that we should do in responding to COVID-19. I got those questions by listening to various new out news outlets that disagree, reading newspapers that disagree and speaking with others that disagree with him, that disagree with me. I do the same with all of my beliefs. If we all, if all we do is read opinion or engage in conversation with others that support our truth, we have no chance of ever finding the truth. Yelling and screaming or its partner emotionally shutting down is not communicating. And if we don't effectively communicate, if we don't listen to understand each other, and recognize that just because you may feel that your opinion is right, it does not necessarily mean that mine is wrong or vice versa. We will never get to a better place, a better understanding. We will never find the truth. We all have 24 hours in our day. If your excuse is that you don't have the time to search for the truth, change your priorities. COVID and what our best response to it, however, should be one of them. Our children's lives depend on it. For our listeners, to sign up for our monthly letter on leadership and to learn more about the program and our leadership development and team building services for your own team, go to www.theprogram.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the program org and on Facebook at the program org and at we do one more and on LinkedIn at linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash the dash program dash LLC. Be great teammates and great team leaders on all the teams of which we are privileged to be a part. Until the next time, thank you and attack. Eric,